0: Support your journey to wellness at B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome
1: to More Than Amuse Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie.
2: Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome to More
1: Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And this is another More Than Amuse Monster Month episode talking about. Another
2: installment.
1: Yeah, the women who have created monsters. Which
2: is so fun!
1: It is so fun, and really, I cannot believe that we have been doing a podcast for two years, and we are now finally talking about one of the most famous woman artists slash authors of all time, Mary Shelley.
2: I know two years and three Octobers. Yeah, look, Everyone I mean, barely here.
1: We have missed the mark, I or maybe know. not. Maybe, maybe like we've been saving it for like the special occasion, I guess, which is just October of you this know, year.
2: It actually is pretty great that it all lined up because we did happen to have like monster themes this entire month Mm -hmm. somehow, you know, so maybe it was just like the perfect time.
1: The perfect time indeed and I'm excited because we are reading Frankenstein this month. I feel like something that I've called myself out on in the past is like we're covering these women on the podcast but am I actually like taking in their work? Like, am I, you know, Mm -hmm. enjoying their art outside of the podcast? So that's something I personally, you know, as I'm learning about women, I'm also like, oh, wait, I have to listen to their art. I have to read their art. Mm -hmm. I have to do something with their art. And so it's been cool to like read it as this month goes on and then now learn a whole bunch about her for this episode and kind of get more context behind, you know, what we've just been enjoying so far together this month.
2: I agree completely. That's also why I've been really enjoying the watch parties too, because it's like a chance yeah. to actually like see what we're talking about, you know? Absolutely.
1: And enjoy some of the art that we've talked about mm-hmm. on here. So, Agreed. like I mentioned, we've been reading Frankenstein, and I've been enjoying it. Same. Mm-hmm. Way more than I thought I would. Same. Way more than I thought I would. Yeah. And I definitely have it in my head that classics are boring. But I like this one. <laughs> Yeah, it's really not boring at all. It's Uh been quite enjoyable. Quite enjoyable. All right, well, before we jump into the life of Mary Shelley, do you have any art that you've created this week?
2: Kind of. I mean, it's a very different kind of art, (laughs) I guess.
1: Cool.
2: Um, We're working on recipe videos this week, and so I have been testing protein shake recipes and then we're filming Ooh. videos for him tomorrow so it's been like very a very different week for me yeah but it's been really fun <laughs> like
1: it, I was gonna say I that sounds way fun yeah I like
2: came up with this protein shake recipe that we tried today and it was actually like really good nice so. Yeah, I was like, wow, look at me, a chef, obviously a protein shake. So
1: it doesn't take that much. No need to belittle it. Like you go make those (laughs) protein shakes.
2: Yeah. So that's kind of been my week. It's been a little chaotic, but it's been Mm -hmm. fun. So I've been enjoying it.
1: love that. The art that I've created this week. Well, yesterday I went to this really fun open mic in Nashville where they have like a house band and you go up on stage and you say, these are the chords for my songs. And they are very good musicians who can just kind of play it. Wait, that's what was happening? They were playing on the spot? On the spot. I went up and I was like, this is a G major 7 to a B minor, to F sharp minor, to an E minor. And that is the chords of my song. How does that work with like bridges and stuff? So, yeah excellent question because I was nervous too because I they kind of just started playing the song and then I was like wait I didn't tell them that the bridge happens so what happened is an, the electric guitar player like took a chorus and was like soloing over it and it was way cool and then the guy who's like the band leader like reached over to me and was like what does the bridge do like almost whispered <laughs> it to me on stage as the other guy was playing and I was like oh yeah it does something different and he was like okay you play the chords on the guitar and I'll follow you the thing is is like I'm I can play the guitar (laughs) but to play it at the speed that the band was and like do all the changes I I started on stage with a guitar and by the end of it I just threw it to the side like it was just dangling off my body and I was singing I was like there's there's just no way so I tried to play the chords in live time. I'm sure he was like, what is she playing? But it, they figured it out and it sounded pretty good. And so it was way fun. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. They even had like a backup singers, didn't they? Yes. Uh-huh. And they just figured it out as you went. They just figured it out. Like when the second chorus came in, they kind of did like, you know, the ooh. Or like I did my song like theater major. And so they kind of did like these backups, like theater, like after I sang it. And so it was cool. They, you know, they definitely like played off of it. And I'm sure there's like some communicating between the two of them, you know, before they just start singing together. But they're very good. That's amazing. Yeah, it was fun. Wow. So got the chance to sing on stage and co-wrote a song with my friend. She was like writing a love song for her husband and I was like wow my husband needs more love songs from me so this is good practice <laughs> I will help you finish this so that's it was awesome fun. Mm-hmm. love so, that yeah just a fun weekend of creating art and Taylor Swift's new album comes out this weekend and I'm very much looking forward to it I know tomorrow yeah. night we'll be listening to the Taylor Swift album for the first time that's, that's amazing crazy and so fun Well, anything else we need to talk about or shall we jump into Mary Shelley? I think we should jump right in. I am putting a disclaimer here first that there is a lot of information about Mary Shelley. There are so many biographies. I didn't read one, but now I really want to. There are journals that she has that are available. Like there is a lot about Mary Shelley. I've even seen millions of memes And I've been
2: like preparing Frankenstein content and stuff. There's so (laughs) much content about Mary
1: Shelley. There is so much. So I will do my best not to make this whole podcast extremely long-winded and also (laughs) hopefully still exciting to listen to. But I will say this woman had a pretty drama-filled life. Like (laughs) the amount of times I was just like reading through her biographies online and just like my jaw would just drop of like oh my gosh like the drama so i don't know has there been a movie about her life i'm gonna google that really. apparently there is a book mary shelley a movie that's some one of the fannings i think yeah l fanning l fanning thank you i guess that movie exists okay well i wonder if it's good and i wonder if it's accurate i know because i ay ay, like there's just a lot um, that you could put in that movie. Uh, yeah,
2: I mean it got a 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, so half and I half, don't I guess. Know.
1: I might just watch it for fun so I can maybe see how Fair. accurate it is. But yeah, as I was reading it before I I guess I should have confirmed earlier, is there a, uh, you know, is there a movie, but it's an interesting life story to read through. So, hopefully I do it justice and I hope you enjoy the ride with me today. Woohoo, I'm excited. Me too. Okay. Well, to start out for, I guess, a brief, not really state of the arts, but just to talk about like how popular Frankenstein is today. So I found this blog article that's called Why Frankenstein Still Sells 40,000 Copies a Year, which is crazy. It's that many every year. 40,000 copies of Frankenstein are still being sold every year. It was by this blog post was by Catherine Bob McGuire. But she starts off by saying, first published in 1818, Frankenstein was released in a modest edition of just 500 in copies. Some 200 years later in 2021, a first edition sold at auction for $1.2 setting a new record for a book by a female author. Oh. And since then, of course, like Frankenstein has been adopted on screens the total of film adaptions now well into triple digits there's frankenstein (laughs) inspired dolls for sale at build-a-bear frankenstein legos there's even breakfast Mm -hmm. cereal that you can buy seasonally like from target having to do with frankenstein so this woman and her creation has so obviously left hits its mark on the world any 19th century novel inspiring this many interpretations is a wonder, but maybe most enviable are the backlist sales. As The Guardian reports, like I mentioned, Frankenstein still moves an eye-watering 40,000 copies a year, which means it outsells 99% of all frontlist or newly released titles. Frankenstein is still every year one of the best-selling books. Oh, holy cow. I know. so That's a lot of books. That's a lot of copies of Frankenstein. And something that she talks about, like she goes into like, why Frankenstein? Like, why is this the book that's doing so well? And like, she of course talks about the fact that the themes in the book are so universal and that the characters, they're talking about ambition and touching on almost like childhood trauma, you know, really with how the monster Mm -hmm. is treated and things like that. And she talks about how it's like, those are still so universal. But (laughs) she also mentioned this Phenomenon called the Lindy effect, where it's basically just that books that survive just tend to keep surviving. It kind of argues that the longer a work of art survives, the longer it will survive, which means that Frankenstein's survival has contributed to and still contributes to its survival. So it's pretty much that it's like because it's lasted this long, I think it's kind of like, well, people are like, oh, well, I mean, if it's lasted this long and people still talk about it, that must mean it's actually good. And I think that's like the ever going attitude. And obviously, as far as, Humanity continues. The fact that Frankenstein is still going to be a very popular icon, I guess, in our a popular image in Halloween and monsters. I think, like I said, it's almost like the book is famous because it's been famous because you know, and and it'll keep getting famous because of it. So yeah, and I'm just thinking
2: of like classic Halloween iconography, right? From like when you're a kid, you draw the Frankenstein, you draw Mm -hmm. Dracula. You draw a mummy, you know, like you draw a a standard set, you know, like that
1: is Halloween. It involves Mm -hmm. Frankenstein. So that's crazy. That's what I thought. It's almost like probably helped out that it was a monster book that was like a new monster kind of, you know, like Mm -hmm. she pretty much like she didn't invent because it's the modern day like Prometheus. So it's like she invented the concept of that story. But like she created Frankenstein
2: isn't prometheus is like a greek
1: yeah it's a greek story a greek um, story yeah but yeah how crazy it's literally outselling 99 percent of all books that are sold every year or at least 99 percent of the front list which i did research like front list is all like the first editions back list is like like you know, when brand books new keep books getting reprinted.
2: Right?
1: yeah anyways so just to set the scene of how popular this character is that she has created and how popular it continues to be. So, Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollenstonecraft Godwin in Somersetown, London, in 1797. She was the second child of the feminist philosopher, educator, and writer Mary Wollenstonecraft, or Wollstonecraft, excuse me. Yeah, that's what it is Wollstonecraft. Thank you. And the first child of philosopher, novelist, and journalist William Godwin. Her mother actually died very shortly after Mary was born. And so William Godwin himself was left to bring up Mary. There's honestly, <laughs> I was really debating how much I wanted to get into her mother. I don't really talk about her a lot. I feel like that's potentially a few future episode. And also there was just so much Just about Mary, that I wanted to Mm -hmm. make sure we touched on. But obviously, like, she came from an iconic, you know, feminist philosopher. So that also just kind of sets the tone, I think, for the rest of her life. But along with her older half sister, Fanny Imlay, who was Wollstonecraft's child by the american philosopher gilbert emlay so was an illegitimate child a year after her mother's death uh, her father published the memoirs of the author of a vindication of the rights of women which he intended as a sincere and a compassionate tribute however because the memoirs revealed her affairs and her illegitimate child they were kind of seen as like shocking which I thought was interesting Uh, it kind of almost like exposed her in ways that I don't think her husband realized would or maybe wasn't anticipating the public's outrage as much as it happened but obviously Mary grew up reading these memoirs and reading her mother's books and was brought up to cherish her mother's memories based on the letters of her dad and the housekeeper and the nurse like i said there is a lot of documentation of mary's life but her early years were happy years however godwin was often very deeply in debt he felt like he couldn't raise the children by himself so he ended up remarrying and then in december of 1801 he married mary jane claremont who was a woman with two young children of her own charles and claire Apparently, most of his friends disliked this new wife, describing her as quick-tempered and quarrelsome. But he really loved her, or at least was devoted to her, and their marriage was successful. But Mary Godwin didn't really like her stepmother. Apparently, it felt like she favored her own children over those of Mary Wollstonecraft's. So, and Mm -hmm. I guess just remember the names. So, Claire Claremont is half-sister And so is Fanny Imlay. And both of those characters kind of come back. And she stays, like, close to them throughout her life. And you'll figure out how. Anyways. So Mary received a little formal education. But, like, her father tutored her. He took his children on educational outings. They had access to the library. So even though, like, it was, like I said, a formal education, obviously education was very important in their home. What I thought was cool is they had a lot of, like, intellectuals is what this said come visit them including a poet samuel taylor coolridge and the former vice president of the united states aaron burr hamilton shout out i guess godwin though himself admitted that he was not educating the children according to mary wollstonecraft's philosophy as outlined in her work such as a vindication of the rights of women but mary godwin still did receive a very good education as a girl for the time she had a governess tutors like i said read many of her father's children's books on roman and greek history for six m- months in 1811 she attended a boarding school and then her father described her at age 15 as singularly bold somewhat imperious and active of her mind her desire of knowledge is great and her perseverance in everything she undertakes she's almost invincible which i think is a nice way to describe your daughter
2: yeah that's a really nice way to describe your daughter That's
1: very cute.
2: That seems very sweet.
1: And in 1812, her father sent her to stay with this family of like this radical named William Baxter. To him, Baxter, he wrote, I'm anxious that she should be brought up like a philosopher, even like a cynic. So some scholars have speculated, though, that maybe she was actually just sent away for her health to kind of remove her from the business that was kind of going on but basically the point is is it seems that like her father had very like radical beliefs politically socially and all of that and he like also wanted her to be exposed by that also her dad struggled a lot with debt and finances so maybe she was kind of sent away so she didn't have to like see that all firsthand I don't know but
2: okay like what kind of radical? Was he like radical for like the fact he married a feminist kind of radical or like are we talking
1: like communist radical? It reminded me of Virginia Woolf a lot. Kind of like that whole circle that you talked about when you did the episode on those two. So, yeah, that was kind of the radicalist views I was picking up on. I'm sure it's not very cool. radical in 2022 you know but yeah
2: that's what I was trying to figure out I was like radical as in like a 17th century radical or radical like they'd be radical now like
1: I think yeah. that it was like still a little bit more radical uh, than like women deserve rights I mean he was married to you know who he was married to who wrote what she wrote so I feel like yeah you know you don't marry someone whose rights a vindication of the rights of women and just be like mm, but I don't think women deserve rights you know I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know who knows <laughs> no that makes sense but she enjoyed her time there with William Baxter and his family apparently like she was really close friend with his four daughters she returned home Summer of 1813, in the 1831 introduction to Frankenstein, she recalled, I wrote then, but in the most commonplace styles, it was beneath the trees of the grounds belonging to our house or on the bleak sides of the woodless mountains near that my true compositions, the airy flights of my imagination were born and fostered. So it seems like it was during this time of her life she started writing, which is exciting. Oh, nice. Now enters a very prominent character that... (laughs) brings in so much drama into mary's life and that is percy shelley so mary godwin may have met the radical poet and philosopher percy shelley in that time between her two stays with that family but by the time she returned home for the second time on march 30th of 1814 percy shelley had become estranged from his own wife and was regularly visiting William Godwin, whom he had agreed to bail out of debt. So, Percy Shelley agreed to help out Mary's father. Percy Shelley's radicalism, particularly his economic views, which he had actually gotten from William Godwin's political justice, had alienated him from his very wealthy, kind of aristocratic family. They wanted him to follow the very traditional, like, models of aristocracy and he wanted to donate large amounts of the family's money to pretty much to help those who were disadvantaged how controversial i know but percy shelley therefore had difficulty gaining access to the money until he fully mm-hmm. inherited his father's estate but that was because his family did not want him wasting it on projects of quote political justice so after several months of promises percy had to say i'm so sorry he could not and would not pay off all of Godwin's debt, and Godwin was very angry and felt betrayed. Which, like from my perspective here, like that's not Percy's fault. Like maybe he was giving false promises that he maybe knew he couldn't keep. I don't know who's like if he's yeah, the but villain it's not here. Like he
2: owed him money. He's like, I'm volunteering to pay off your debt. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Like you don't own any right to the money that someone offered you.
1: That's kind of what that's I'm thinking too. too. Um, But Mary and Percy began meeting each other secretly at her mother's grave in the churchyard, and they fell in love. She was 16, he was 21. June 26th of 1814, Shelley and Godwin declared their love for one another as Shelley announced he could not hide his ardent passion, leading her in a sublime and rapturous moment to say she felt the same way. On either that day or the next, she lost her virginity to him. And as tradition claims... It happened in the churchyard, which I'm sure is maybe something you heard. On her mother's grave? Yeah, is that? Near her mother's grave?
2: Yeah. I I've heard it was on her mother's grave, but that sounds a little...
1: I'm sure it was very close to it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the... I guess that's the myth of Mary Shelley is she lost her virginity on her mother's grave, which, you know what? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I mean, it's very goth. It is so. very goth. And, and <laughs> yeah. Shelley had a... Mary had a very goth life, like and a very <laughs> feminist life too i guess and what is more yeah. feminist and goth than yeah losing your virginity in a <laughs> on a grave your I mean count illness. me out but like I mean saying, like <laughs> okay. that is but I think that's maybe shows the differences between Mary and I so it's all good <laughs> yeah Mary described herself as attracted to Percy's wild intellectual unearthly looks but of course to Mary's dismay her father disapproved tried to thwart the relationships and kind of salvage the spotless fame of his daughter About the same time, Mm -hmm. Mary's father learned of his inability to pay off the father's debts. So it's, you know, that's probably why he really disapproved is because he wasn't going to be paying off his debts anymore. And Mary apparently was very genuinely confused about the fact that her dad was so against it. She actually saw Percy Shelley as the embodiment of her parents' liberal and like reformist ideas, particularly mm. his view that marriage was a repressive monopoly. And that's something that her dad argued in political justice. But apparently he later retracted that. So I don't know. But they later eloped and they secretly left for France and they took Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, with them. So the three of them left and went to france so basically the three of them they're in paris and then by donkey mule carriage and foot through france they pretty much just journeyed to switzerland Because France was like in a war at the beginning of the 1800s. This is a quote. So it was acting in a novel, being an incarnate romance, she recalled in 1826. Godwin wrote about France in 1814. The distress of the inhabitants whose houses had been burned, their cattle killed, and all their wealth destroyed had given a sting to my detestation of war. But as they traveled, they read works by Mary's mother and others. They kept a joint journal and they both continued their own writing. They didn't have a lot of money. So they traveled right back down the Rhine and then arrived at Gravesend, Kent on September 13th, 1814. So it kind of sounds like for like six months, they just kind of like traveled around France and Switzerland. and were just kind of getting by with what they could. Wow. I know. So now they're in England. This is, it's going to get a little bit complicated because they're just, they just go all over Europe, it feels, but she's in England and she had become pregnant. So she was pregnant and they had no money and Mary's father refused to have anything to do with her. The couple moved with Claire, her stepsister, into lodgings at Summer's Tower and later Nielsen Square. They pretty much just maintain their really intense program of reading and writing and entertaining. And they entertained Percy Shelley's friends. And then Percy Shelley sometimes left home for short periods of time to dodge creditors and the couples, their letters kind of reveal their pain at these separations. So it sounds like a truly, huh. you know, just like free couple. They don't, <laughs> they're just kind of doing things as they must. And he's kind yeah. of constantly on the run from debt creditors and things like that. Crazy. So she was pregnant and often very ill. Their son was born, Harriet Shelley, in the late 1814. And her husband Percy and her stepsister Claire Claremont were like constantly out together and were like, most certainly oh. they were lovers. Like yeah. And that obviously caused a lot of jealousy on Mary's part. Shelley greatly offended godwin at one point when during a walk in the french countryside he suggested that they both take the plunge into a stream naked as it offered offended her principles she was partly consoled by the visits of Hogg, whom she disliked at first but soon considered a close friend percy shelley seems to have wanted mary godwin and Hogg to become lovers mary did not dismiss the idea since she did believe in free love in practice, however, she loved only Percy she- Shelley and seems to have ventured no further than flirting with Hogg. And then mm. on fe- February 22nd of 1815, she gave birth to a two-month premature baby girl who is not expected to survive, which is very, very sad. So before I dive into, you know, obviously the tragedy of her losing a child, I don't yeah. really think, I, I don't know if... All of history agrees with me, but I see Percy as a villain, as a real big old villain in this story, because I think he was almost using it against her. Like, well, you believe in free love. You don't believe in marriage and monogamy. And so I get to go off with all of these women. And she's like, well, I only love you. So I don't want to go off with all these men. And it just kind of seems that she got the short end of that stick. Maybe that's me not being very progressive, but...
2: It just seems like Percy sucks. I think there kind of has to be an agreement between the couple. And I think believing that monogamy isn't a thing versus
1: practicing it are two very different things as well. Um, Yes, that's what I was thinking, too, because I'm sure if you asked her, (laughs) she would be like, no, of course I believe in it. So it's okay that you're doing this because she probably realized like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm a hypocrite or like I don't really hold true to these morals if I tell him no. But also like... I don't know. Like you said, I think if you're not participating in it, but your partner is, I'm sure she didn't feel like she could say, hey, I'm uncomfortable by you having an ongoing affair with my stepsister.
2: You know? Well, definitely not. And it's even kind of weird that they brought her from the beginning. Like, I was kind of going to ask that. I was like, why did they bring the stepsister, like, on essentially what was, like, their honeymoon?
1: Yeah, because he
2: wanted her there. So, I don't know. There's actually... There's, like, this really, really great, beautiful article on marriage by J.R.R. Tolkien, like, the author of Lord of the Rings.
0: Okay. And he was,
2: like, a very devout Catholic, but he even talks about how he doesn't believe in monogamy, but he believes in the practice of it. He thinks that it's, like, obviously getting a little religious here, but he talks about how, like, he thinks that denying the natural man is the way of showing God like, that you're stronger than your impulses. hmm So he didn't believe that monogamy was natural, but he believed in the practice of monogamy. So I think be. there can, like, be kind of a, a distinction between, could be between true. the two. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's something that – probably should be figured out between partners within a marriage in a fair way so that you're not abandoning your pregnant wife to go sleep with her sister
1: yeah Um, you know what that is the exact point i was making Of like let's make sure (laughs) we're in agreement here and not being like "Mm, you're sad and pregnant i'm gonna go have sex with your sister I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you're the villain, Percy, but whatever.
2: Yeah. And I've I've even heard of like couples, because you know like polyamory is becoming like more of a thing. But I've heard Same. stories of people that um they won't go be with anyone else while their spouse is pregnant because it's such a vulnerable time for that person. Oh, yeah. And they need the support and like the baby could come at any time or there could be a miscarriage or like, mm-hmm. you know, there's just so many other things and like factors involved that like when you involve another aspect of it,
1: yeah. it's probably
2: best to just stick with them. But probably best.
1: Yes. Who am I to judge? I don't judge <laughs> Everyone, I judge Percy Shelley. That's who I'm judging yeah. right now. So, hmm. Yes. Anyways, but obviously, back to, I guess, the tragedy. So she lost her child, very much like depression, postpartum depression. And apparently she was haunted yeah. by visions of the baby. She conceived oh. again and had recovered by the summer. And apparently, Percy was doing a little bit better financially after the death of his grandfather because he actually got, you know, his some money. And they mm-hmm. holidayed in a cottage at Bishop's Gate at the edge of Windsor Great Park. I'm not very familiar with the...
2: Is that in England? Yes, it's Windsor? in, it's in okay.
1: England. I just don't really know where. Apparently, little is known about this period of her life because her journal from that year was lost. On January 24th of 1816, she gave birth to her second son, William, named after her father, and they nicknamed him Will Mouse, which is adorable. <laughs> That's really cute. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's talk about how Frankenstein was created. So, May of 1816, Mary Godwin, Percy Shelley, and their son... They traveled to Geneva with Claire Claremont. So again, she was just always there. Whatever. And they plan to spend the summer with the poet Lord Byron, whose recent affair with Claire had left her pregnant. So oh. this is kind of back to like Virginia Woolf where like same everyone's kind of sleeping with each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Same Claire. When did she go hang out with Lord Byron? <laughs> I don't know. But he got her pregnant. So... <laughs> Mary Shelley wrote in 1831, It proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Sitting around a log fire at Byron's villa, the company amused themselves with German ghost stories, which prompted Byron to propose that they each write a ghost story. Unable to think of a story, she became anxious. Quote, Have you thought of a story? I was asking each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. But then during one mid June evening, the discussions turned to the nature of the principle of life. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated, Mary said. Galvanism had given token of such things. And it was after midnight before they retired, and unable to sleep, she became possessed by her imagination as she beheld the grim terrors of the waking dream, her ghost story. And then this quote says, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for, su- for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous me- mechanism of the creator of the world. So... There is how the idea of Frankenstein came about. I love that it was basically just like, a party game like yeah. they're
2: like oh come up with a ghost story and then she like writes one of the greatest novels <laughs> all ever time. Created.
1: yeah <laughs> like, literally yeah. <laughs> and so then she began writing what she actually at the time assumed would be a short story with percy shelley's encouragement she expanded the tale into her very first novel frankenstein or the modern prometheus and it was published in 1818 she later described that summer in switzerland as the moment quote when i first stepped out from childhood into life the story of the writing of Frankenstein has been fictionalized several times and formed on the basis of a number of films. I think there's kind of like a, you know, a romantic thing about a work of art that has that's this lasting being created. And I think it's, I don't know. I think it's mm. kind of cool that we fictionalize that and make it a magical moment because even if in the moment it was really just her just like thinking one day and being like, Oh, cool. I have an idea. I want to write this and I see it in my head. But it's cool. It's like, look back and like, I don't know. Look at a creation of a work of art, or the idea that comes to it as being like a magical thing that you know should be fictionalized. I don't know. If, I don't know if that makes sense. The point I'm trying to make. I agree. But no, I completely get what you're saying. I love it. In September 2011, the astronomer Donald Olson, after a visit to the Lake Geneva Villa the previous year and inspecting data about the motion of the moon and stars concluded that her waking dream took place between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. June 16th, 1816, several days after the initial idea by Lord Byron that they should each write a ghost story. So it sounds like she really did, like, wake up in the middle of the night with a thing. I think it's cool that, like, an astronomer yeah. went to go find that out when exactly I that know. happened. I'm like, man, that's a lot of effort. I would just trust <laughs> that it was the middle of the night. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> a brief caveat into, like, her life after – because this is just, again, drama, but I also don't want to diminish, like, the tragedy of what happened and just, like, a trigger warning for suicide for the next, like, mm. minute and a half if you want to be safe. And then we'll go back to talking about reception of Frankenstein and everything. So they returned to cool. England in September. Mary and Percy moved with Claire, <laughs> who took lodgings nearby, <laughs> where they hoped to keep Claire's pregnancy secret. I'm assuming it's still the pregnancy with Lord Byron. But while they were there, Mary Godwin had received two letters from her half-sister, Fanny Imlay, who kind of alluded to her own unhappy life. And October 9th, Fanny wrote an alarming letter from Bristol that sent Percy racing off to search for her without success. The next morning, she was found dead in a room along with a suicide note, which is really sad. And then on December 10th, Percy Shelley's wife... That he was estranged from, I guess in my head when I was first doing the research, I was like, that he obviously divorced. I don't think he actually ever divorced her. But they, she was also discovered, she had drowned in a lake in London and both suicides were pretty much just like hushed up. Harriet's family pretty much stopped all of his own efforts to assume custody of the two children that he had with Harriet which like makes sense he had two kids yeah mm -hmm. (laughs) yes his lawyers told him to improve his case by marrying so he and mary actually did get married at this point but i think it was just because he like you know i said it would help his chances of potentially gaining custody of his children i don't think he Mm. deserves custody of the children he abandoned but um yeah whatever i thought him and mary were already married no, they well they eloped, but I don't think it was like any like, you know It wasn't p- legal. Yeah, I guess you like can't legal. legally marry someone if you're married to someone else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and they just like yeah. ran off together and said, We're together now. Okay. Gosh. Whatever. What a confusing man. Mm-hmm. So he, they married December thirtieth, eighteen sixteen and at this time she was pregnant again. And apparently Mr. and Mrs. Godwin, so mary's parents were present and the, them getting married like ended the family rift so i imagine that oh. it was like the shame of her running off and getting eloped that they just like couldn't handle which i'm like were you really that okay. progressive that i don't know it's fine it's fine because they couldn't <laughs> handle like a, you know their daughter being with someone that she wasn't married to i don't know but even though the stepsisters with him too yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't want to come across judgmental i just after reading about everything i do not like Percy shelley that is all we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists
2: so there's like this girl on TikTok that i follow her username is jg therese, therese is t-h-e-r-e-s-e she's also on instagram under the same username but she does, like, a lot of, like, fashion inspiration. But she'll, like, pick a movie and then do, like, five or six outfits from it. And she's been doing, like, horror icons and cool. or, like, classic monster outfit inspo. So I think she even has a Frankenstein one. Let me see if I'm right. Yeah, she does. <laughs> And then she also did like Amazing. Dracula and the mummy and the Wolfman, And they're just fun. I think she's like really creative with them and I love the concept. So even though I don't like dress like she does in real life, like I like seeing her videos and like the different ways she comes up with concepts and transitions yeah. and stuff. It's really
1: clever. That's cool. I love that. For my spotlight, I'm doing a woodland fairy tale <laughs> on instagram Ooh. um who is an artist named jesse barber her bio says mother wife and self-taught watercolor artist inspired by my love of nature and fairy tales but what i thought was fun is like on my on the for you page Like, the first one that showed up was called Ghosty Meets a Dragon. And it's this little ghost that's, like, looking at this, you know, dragon. And there's a moon and, like, cute little mushrooms and, like, sparkles and glitter. But then also, like, in a pumpkin patch. And they're really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. There's one with, like, a ghost and unicorns. And I think it's really cool and cute the way that she's incorporating Halloween with her little woodland fairy tales so yeah go follow her they're adorable
2: oh the ghost meeting a unicorn
1: i know i loved it so yeah again um it's just the cutest thing i've ever seen so go follow a woodland fairy tale
2: fun! definitely do it looks like she sells bookmarks too
1: so yes
2: that's pretty awesome this is your mid episode reminder to go follow us on instagram at more than we so you can check out more of the people that we follow that are all of our past artist spotlights as well mm-hmm. as all the things we've got going on throughout the week we're doing a book club for frankenstein and we're doing watch parties of different movies every single week so lots of fun stuff you lots don't want to miss stuff. it
1: yes all right now back to the show Early in the summer of 1817, though, she finished Frankenstein, which was published anonymously in January of 1818. Reviewers and readers assumed that Percy Shelley was the author since the book was published with his preface and it was dedicated to his political hero, William Godwin. So published anonymously, but the preface was penned knowingly by Percy Shelley and it shouted (laughs) out Mary's dad. Okay. This is something I've been thinking about a lot
2: lately. Cool. Why on earth would a man in that time period publish anything anonymously? Yeah, I don't know. And how did everyone else not just catch on if they're like, oh, it's anonymous. Therefore, it's probably a woman. It's And
1: also like it's probably his wife, like who is well yeah. known as like being a writer and like hanging out with the same people that he hangs out with, like artsy philosopher type people. I just like was
2: no one smart enough to piece that together. Like he would have no reason to publish it, especially if he's going to put his name on the preface. Like I don't know, maybe, and then I don't know. You know, I like because maybe they were like, "Oh, well, maybe he's not sure if it'll be a success." I don't know, but (laughs) the whole thing, I'm just like, obviously, it was probably a woman therefore if he's writing the preface look at the women he knows and it's probably and trace your steps
1: and there you are yes i fully (laughs) agree with you whatever i want to talk about the reception of frankenstein so frankenstein has both been well received and disregarded since its anonymous publication (laughs) critical reviews of that time demonstrate these very two views along with confused speculation as to the identity of the author which again it's like put two and two together like who wrote the preface (laughs) who is he closest to his wife whatever literally um but walter scott writing in the blackwoods edinburgh magazine praises the novel as an extraordinary tale in which the author seems to us to disclose uncommon powers of poetic imagination although he was less convinced about the way in which the monster gains knowledge about the world and language la belle assemblée (laughs) described the novel as very bold fiction and the edinburgh magazine and literary miscellany hope to see more productions from this author but on the other hand john wilson croak writing anonymously in the quarterly review um, although conceding that the author has powers both of conception and language described the book as a tissue of horrible and disgusting absurdity But then to other reviews where at this point the author is known as the daughter of William Godwin, the criticism of the novel makes reference to the feminine nature of Mary Shelley. The British (laughs) critic attacks the novel's flaws as the fault of the author. Quote, the writer of it is we understand a female. Thus is an aggravation to that which is the prevailing fault of the novel. But if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex, it is no reason why we should. And we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment goodness gracious isn't that crazy and then that's so stupid the literary panorama and national register attacks the novel as a feeble imagination of mr godwin's novels produced by the daughter of a celebrated living novelist oh that one makes (laughs) me mad too but despite these reviews frankenstein achieved an almost immediate popular success became widely known especially through melodramatic theater adaptations she saw a production of it presumption or the fate of frankenstein which is actually a play that was put on in 1823 so that's pretty cool that that's like, so cool so quickly after you know like literally five years and it's a stage production
2: yeah that would be so amazing as an author to be mm-hmm. like you know
1: it's already a stage production that's yes really cool i just think it's so interesting too the difference in the reviews of before they knew it was a woman and after because no one was saying like hmm mm, it's you know feminine language and criticizing that before they knew it was but then all of a sudden when they found out it was a woman it was like oh here's something we can poke at here's something we can find fault in like, it gosh yeah I, that's annoying this quote is just i can't i can't get over it but if our authors can forget the gentleness of her sex it is no reason why we should and we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment like what?
2: they're basically saying that like she should never have written a book like that because she's a woman.
1: And so we are disregarding it completely. And that's so stupid. <laughs> I just oh my gosh. Anyways, as I mentioned, the authorship of Frankenstein was up for debate. and also even still, of course, because when any time a woman creates anything, it has to be like, well, maybe it was because of the men in her life. How can it still be up for debate? <laughs> Thank you. But up until a certain point, People argued that maybe like, oh, how much did Percy really contribute? Her husband, Percy, encouraged her writing, but the extent of Percy's contribution to the novel is unknown and has been argued over by readers and critics. Mary Shelley wrote, quote, I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident, nor scarcely of one train of feeling to my husband. And yet... But for his enticement, it would never have taken the form of which it was presented to the world. She wrote that the preface to the first edition was Percy's work. And as far as I can recollect, there are differences in the 1818, 1823 and 1831 editions, which have been attributed to Percy's editing. James Riger, though, concluded that Percy's assistance at every point in the book's manufacture was so extensive that one hardly knows whether to regard him as editor or minor collaborator. While others have argued that Percy only made many technical corrections and several times clarified the narrative and thematic continuity of his text, Charles E. Robinson, editor of one of the editions of the Frankenstein manuscripts concluded that Percy's contributions to the book were no more than what most publishers editors have provided new or old authors or in fact what colleagues have provided to each other after reading each Mm -hmm. other's work in progress yes
2: exactly what I was gonna say you don't give an editor author credits even though they go through and they make minor adjustments and 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 that's exactly
1: what he was doing and it's almost like by this logic of it's like me personally I write songs and like Me pursuing it as much as I currently am is partly because I have a wonderful husband who encourages me, who I bounce ideas off with and is like the one who's like, you should keep doing this. You should keep doing this. I don't think Jordan deserves songwriting credit on my songs. And I don't think anyone listens to my songs like, I bet Jordan. That was written by Jordan. That was written by (laughs) Jordan. I mean, (laughs) even though you could have an argument that these songs would not be out in the world because of him. Like, there is an argument yeah. because of that. But I wrote them. The thing
2: that annoys me the most is that nobody does that with men. No. Famous men. Mm-hmm. Nobody's like, oh, you know what? If his wife wasn't there, like, this wouldn't there's exist. no way. Like,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: That wouldn't be a thing. Like, if Mozart's sister hadn't have helped teach him piano and composition, like, you're right. We never would have had that sonata. Nobody's doing that. Nobody is
1: doing that.
2: Yeah. So that's really irritating. It's like, I think that you can owe like little tiny bits of accomplishments in every part of who we are to a million different people. It doesn't mean that they get the credit Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You're still the one who had to sit down and do the work.
1: Yes. I 100% agree. Writing on the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, the literary scholar and poet Fiona Sampson asked, why hasn't Mary Shelley gotten the respect she deserves? She noted that in recent years, Percy's con- corrections visible in the Frankenstein notebooks held at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, which is cool, by the way, that that exists. Yeah, have, awesome. that Those are there. Have been seized on as evidence that he must have at least co-authored the novel. In fact, when I examined the notebooks myself, I realized that Percy did rather less than any line editor working in publishing today. Um, and she actually published her findings in her um, biography in search of mary shelley which is one of many biographies written about mary but i i feel like if i want to read one i would want to read that one so
0: i thought that was cool
1: so back to going her life update a brief little how to talk about frankenstein because obviously i think in 1817 the autumn of 1817 percy shelley often lived away from the home in london to evade creditors again The threat of a debtor's prison, combined with their own ill health and fears of losing custody of their children, contributed to the couple's decision to to leave. So I'm wondering if he got custody of his previous children and was afraid of losing it. So he said, cool, we'll take them to Italy, which (laughs) seems illegal, but whatever. Yeah. Um, So March of 1818, they go to Italy, taking Claire Claremont with them. Of course. Of course. And they had no (laughs) intention of returning and they pretty much just had like a roving existence it said never really settled in one place for long um but they accumulated a circle of friends and acquaintances who often moved with them so it just like feels like it's like this like kind of like philosophers and writers and poets just like traveling around italy together taking their time (laughs) reading writing learning sightseeing, and socializing so like it's a it's a romantic type of life i'm in some ways yeah however the italian adventure <laughs> Which is, I thought that quote was funny, um, was <laughs> obviously blighted for Mary Shelley because both her children had passed away. Clara in September 1818 in Venice died, and William in June of 1819 in Rome. And these losses oh, yeah. left her in a very deep depression that isolated her from Percy Shelley. He wrote in this notebook this poem. Um, that said my dearest mary wherefore hast thou gone and left me in this dreary world alone thy form is here indeed a lovely one but thou art fled gone down a dreary road that leads to sorrow's most obscure abode for thine own sake i cannot follow thee do thou return for mine which is like a nice sentiment even though this is a percy shelley hate account at this point but Like, um, what do you mean Was she's left you alone? Yeah. You have
2: your stepsister. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. You bring her with you everywhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but during this time, she apparently only found comfort in her writing. But then she actually gave birth to the fourth child, Percy Florence, on November 12th of 1819. And that finally lifted her spirits. Though, like, obviously she mourned the loss of her children for the rest of her yeah. life. Yeah. Despite its association with personal loss, Italy became for Mary Shelley, quote, a country with memory painted as paradise. Their Italian years were a time of intense intellectual and creative activity for both of them. He, Percy, composed a series of major poems. She wrote the novel Matilda, the historical novel Valperga, and the plays Persephone and Midas. Apparently, Mm -hmm. she actually wrote Valperga. I believe that's how you say it, to kind of help alleviate her father's financial difficulties as percy refused to assist him any further she was often very physically ill and prone to depressions which is makes sense um and she was also had to cope with percy's interest in other women such as sophia stacy emily vivani and jane williams but at least at this point it was mutual because since she shared his beliefs in the non-exclusivity of marriage she did form emotional ties of her own among the men and women of their circle I don't know though if they were like romantic or if she was just like close with them. I feel like formed emotional ties yeah, it sounds is very like it ambiguous. Was just emotional
2: ties. I don't. Yeah. know. Yeah. Like great. So she had a couple of good friends.
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe it was I just romantic feel bad for her. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I need. I'll read like a biography that's a little bit more in depth on that, and it will say that it's romantic. But at least she like has people besides him. That's all I'm yeah. grateful for.
2: I guess that's true. At least they have like a group. Yeah. So she has people to hang out with while he
1: abandons her. Yeah. He's like, My wife's sad. I'm gonna go hang out with these hot women. <laughs> That's just the vibe <laughs> I get. So I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> but they moved at this point to Rome. Rome inspired her to begin writing her unfinished novel, Valerius, the reanimated Roman. But then the novel was written off when her son died. She bitterly commented mm. that she had come to Italy to improve her husband's health. And instead, the Italian climate had just killed her two children, leading her to write, quote, may you, my dear Marianne, never know what it is to lose two only and lovely children in one year to watch their dying moments and then at last be left childless and forever miserable, which is very sad. Aww, this This kind sad. of went out of order. But like I said, it was during this time, though, that she did take solace in writing and eventually wrote Matilda and her novella, The Fields of Fancy. OK, so in the summer of 1822, a pregnant Mary moved with Percy, Claire and Edward and Jane Williams. Edward and Jane Williams are their friend that she was really close to, to the isolated via Magni at the sea's edge near the hamlet of San Terenzo in the Bay of larici I just had to say that whole name because it sounds pretty. But apparently she was very distracted and unhappy there. She went on to call that villa um, and regard to it as a dungeon. And then in June 16th, she miscarried losing so much blood, apparently, that she nearly died. Rather than waiting oh for a doctor, gosh. Percy sat her in a bath of ice to staunch the bleeding that apparently the doctor later told him is what saved her life. So wow okay. okay but all was not well between that couple that summer despite him saving her life which i guess congratulations percy you didn't let your wife die, because he spent yeah. more time with jane williams rather than his depressed and debilitated wife so what a guy goodness gracious mm-hmm. <sighs> but then oh man i should have just put so much, i realized as i was like talking about miscarriage i was like i should have probably put a trigger warning for child loss and miscarriage like this we woman didn't have a very beginning. yeah dark sad life that i i do feel really like i don't know bad like obviously there's just so much tragedy here and obviously they were here on the italian coast percy shelley and edward williams had their chance to enjoy their perfect plaything for the summer which was a new sailing boat july 8th he (laughs) and edward set out on their return journey back to larici with their 18 year old boat boy charles vivian and they never reached their destination a letter arrived at the villa from hunt to percy shelley dated july 8th saying pray write to us tell us how you got home for they say you had bad weather after you sailed monday and we were anxious the paper fell from me mary told a friend later i trembled all over she and jane williams rushed desperately to the sea and then to pisa in the fading hope that their husbands were still alive 10 days after the storm three bodies washed up on the coast." midway between the two places they were and yeah they percy shelley was cremated cremated at that beach so wow i know so that's really sad i guess i feel bad i'm like okay i was making jokes as a percy shelley hate account he died very tragically and very horrifyingly and that obviously left mary all alone yeah, I feel
2: bad for Mary in that circumstance because that's like she's already dealt with so much loss. She's know, already now depressed, she her husband. and then her husband goes out sailing with his friends and dies. Yeah, like, it's, that's it's horrible.
1: After her husband's death, Mary Shelley lived for a year with Leigh Hunt and his family in Genoa, where she often saw Lord Byron and transcribed his poems. She resolved to live by her pen and for her son, but her financial situation was not very good. On July 23rd of 1823, she left Genoa for England, stayed with her father and her stepmother, um, under a small advance from her father-in-law, enabled her to lodge nearby. This is, like, kind of confusing, but her father-in-law sir timothy shelley had at first agreed to support his grandson percy florence only if he were handed over Mm -hmm. to an appointed guardian mary shelley rejected this instantly because she wanted to take care of percy florence oh yeah she managed instead to wring out sir timothy a limited annual allowance so which she apparently had to repay when percy florence inherited the estate i don't know but to the, the end heck? of his days, he refutes to ever meet her in person and dealt with her only through lawyers. He was the only child of hers to live beyond infancy. So, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Which makes sense why That's she's why like, it's so no. annoying that he's like... Yeah,
2: he's like, oh, give her to an approved guardian. She's like, I'm not going to give away my My only only kid kid left.
1: Like, that's messed up. I know. But during this time, she busied herself with editing her husband's poems, among other literary endeavors. But concern for her son pretty much restricted, like, any other options. Sir Timothy apparently threatened to stop the allowance if any biography of the poet were published. In 1826, Percy Florence became the legal heir of the entire Shelley estate after the death of his half-brother, Charles Shelley, which was his father's son by Harriet Shelley. So I don't know how that happened. Oh, I think Harriet was Percy's first wife. And so... Oh, okay. Charles Shelley was the original heir, but then he died. So then Percy Florence became the heir. Like I said, just a lot of drama, <laughs> like so much family drama. Yeah. So then after that, the allowance was raised, but he still remained very difficult. But despite all this, she still enjoyed like all of her friends that she had. But she was in pretty heavy poverty, which prevented her from socializing as she wished. And she felt Mm -hmm. obviously very ostracized from people in her circle and from like her family, who still was very disapproving of her relationship with Percy Shelley. He's... Dead. i don't know i don't know uh, <laughs> what the heck yes in oh the summer gosh of 1824 she moved to kentish town in north london to be near james william she may have been in the words of her biographer a little in love with jane jane apparently later disillusioned her by gossiping that percy had preferred her to mary owing to mary's inadequacy oh. as a wife ah so oh. i'm like i hate that she was like oh my good friend jane williams but it's like Well, Jane is talking smack, so whatever. Yeah. I have to bring up, I
2: heard this thing that because her husband washed ashore, his heart was like calcified. Yes. And so she like kept his fossilized heart with her Mm -hmm. and then ended up like wrapping it in some poetry and like keeping it in her desk. Yes. For the rest of her life.
1: Correct. I will mention that later, but yes. is that crazy? Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's crazy. <laughs> it is. Very goth, always. Around this time, Mary Shelley was working on her novel, The Last Man. She assisted a series of friends who were writing memoirs of Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, which was the beginnings of her attempts to immortalize her husband. So, like, okay, maybe I'm being too hard on Percy. She obviously still loved him after death and was, like, very much wanting to immortalize him and share his work and tell his story. Apparently, too, like at the, it's like throughout the rest of her life, there's like different like romantic interests of people that like were very interested in her. One of them was John Howard Payne and he fell in love with her and asked her to marry him. But she refused, saying that after being married to one genius, she could only marry another, which is funny. So she oh, obviously wow. like considered Percy Shelley a genius. And she was like, no, I'm only going to be married to geniuses, which I love that. And apparently he accepted the rejection and tried <laughs> without success to talk his friend Into proposing himself, so I'm like, sounds like men were just in love with her, but whatever. But during this time, she really just worked a lot as an editor and a writer. Um, she wrote different novels. She was editing her friend's poems. She was writing stories for ladies' magazines, and she was still able to support her father. And they looked out for publishers for each other. In 1830, she sold the copyright for a new edition of Frankenstein for 60 pounds to Henry Colburn and Richard Bentley for the New Standard Novel series. And then after her father's death at the age of 80, she began assembling his letters and a memoir of her publication as he requested to do this. Was 60 pounds a lot? Because that doesn't I mean, seem like a lot. Here's the thing. I'm sure like at the time it was fine. You know what? Let's Google. Let's. What year was it? 1837. OK, so 60 pounds in 1837 is worth $7,000 today. About. $7,500 today. OK. 7,500 pounds. I, I don't feel like so, that's enough for the best one of the best yeah, novels. And like obviously it's pretty
2: pretty decent, like not sixty dollars. Like, but at the no. same time, like compared to how many copies it's selling now, like that's
1: really low. That's insane. I know. But throughout this time too, moving forward, she um, championed all of her husband's work, promoted his publication, quoting it in her writing. Just she was just a what's the word like a champion of his work moving forward. And then, like I mentioned, she kind of just had like romantic, romantic partners that were very entranced with her. She had like her old friend Edward Trelawney returned to England. They joked about marriage in their letters. Their friendship had altered, however, following her refusal to cooperate with his proposed biography of Percy Shelley. And then he was like, yeah, mad about that. Um, there's also references in her journals from the early 1830s until the 40s that suggest that she had feelings for the radical politician Aubrey Bluekirk, who may have disappointed her by twice marrying others. So she had like <laughs> other people she was interested in romantically, but nothing ever like... <laughs> became you know anything
2: i don't think i really like mary shelley's taste in men no (laughs) i don't think so either
1: (laughs) like they all sound like jerks (laughs) they do Uh, in 1840 and 1842 a mother and son traveled together on the continent journeys that she recorded in rambles in germany and italy in 1844 her father in law sir timothy shelley finally died (laughs) at the age of 90 (laughs) which is crazy he lived until 90 years old (laughs) And this is what Mary said falling from the stock like an overblown flower as Mary put it which I thought was so funny and for the first time (laughs) she and her son were financially independent although apparently the estate that he inherited was less valuable than they originally had hoped it would be her last years were blighted by illness her son ended up marrying Jane Shelley And from 1839, she suffered from headaches and bouts of paralysis in parts of her body, which sometimes prevented her from reading and writing. And then on February 1st of 1851, she died at the age of 53. From what her physicians suspected was a brain tumor. Oh, no. And Percy and Jane buried her at St. Peter's Church near their new home. And then on the first anniversary of Mary Shelley's death, the Shelleys opened her box desk. Inside, they found locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook she had shared with Percy Shelley, and a copy of his poem with one page folded around a silk parcel containing some of his ashes and the remains of his heart. Yep. Yep. So creepy,
2: creepy, creepy. I know. And
1: like, I mean, just there's a lot of romance here where it's like a year after the death. It's a scene from a movie that they open up the thing. Mm-hmm. And what do they find? You know, the things she cared about most. The locks of her dead children's hair. The notebook she shared with her late husband. A copy of his poem. And then his heart. And his heart. Which sounds like an yes. Edgar
2: Poe poem.
1: Yes, the tale it does. Heart. <laughs> I I love it. One last thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit. There's obviously so so much I could dive into as far as like her writing and the themes in her writing and the style and all of it. But the one thing I wanted to talk about is just the theme of just gender and being a woman that come up in her writing and specifically in frankincense. In frankincense? Mm-hmm. In- that could be like a Christmas parody novel. <laughs> frankincense. Yeah. <literally. laughs> Actually that's hilarious particularly in Frankenstein. So with the rise of feminist literary criticism in the 1970s, Mary Shelley's works, particularly Frankenstein, began to attract much more attention from scholars. Feminist and analytic critics were largely responsible for the recovery from neglect of Shelley as a writer. Ellen Moores was one of the first to claim that Shelley's loss of a baby was a critical influence on the writing of Frankenstein. She argues that the novel is a birth myth in which Shelley comes to terms with her guilt for causing her own mother's death as well as for failing as a parent. Parent. Shelley scholar Anne K. Meller suggests that from a feminist viewpoint, it is a story about what happens when a man tries to have a baby without a woman. Frankenstein is profoundly concerned with natural as opposed to unnatural modes of production and reproduction. Victor Frankenstein's failure as a quote parent in the novel has been read as an expression of the anxieties which accompany pregnancy, giving birth, and particularly maternity. Which I thought was a really interesting. interesting angle to take Frankenstein. And also, I just really, yeah. really love that it was like the 70s that like maybe brought back, I don't know, Mary Shelley's prominence as a writer. And maybe even just like Frankenstein itself. It's just mm-hmm. cool to hear that it's like, oh, like not to pat ourselves on the back here, but it's like, oh, talking more about these women artists that are forgotten that we believe deserve more credit it could actually be effective because it has been effective in the past there's been other artists we've covered where there is a resurgence because scholars are like wait what about this woman and it's cool that it seems that Mary Shelley was one of those and now Frankenstein is continuously the best-selling book of whatever year we're focusing on so I just think that's amazing yeah that's really cool So, wow, there is Mary Shelley. I think I wrapped it up without it being too long. And no, you did what a life of drama (laughs) gothicness. I don't know. I know. And I mean, really just (laughs) what an incredible woman and suffered a lot of loss. This is another random thing I just wanna bring up is it's just so sad and crazy to me that they had such a life of poverty. Considering she wrote one of the most well-known classics, right? And it's just crazy. I I feel like now as an artist, I can bemoan like not being paid what I feel like I'm worth and people not appreciating that. But I do feel like we have come a long way as far as copyright goes. And for the most part, people who at least write books that do well, it seems that they are the ones financially benefiting from it. So I mean, maybe someone who's in the publishing world is like shaking their head at me. Maybe that's not true. But from my perspective, it does seem like at least from the 1800s, we have made progress in allowing artists to be credited for what they do. Agreed. Yeah, it is a total bummer,
2: especially now that it's like it continues to be one of the best-selling authors. And because it is a open source book, like it was written over 100 years ago, so the copyright expired... I think only the publishers of the book are getting any profit from it. So even like her descendants, if there are any, I don't know. Um, they're not making anything off of it Yeah, either. which is so
1: sad and just interesting. Yeah. That that's how
2: it works. But anyways. It's really weird.
1: It, I guess that is all. And there is finally Mary Shelley. I know. How fun. How cool. Join us next week for our final episode of more than amused monster month and the fun thing about it is that episode will be coming out on halloween so i know i'm so excited halloween's on a monday so Mm -hmm. it'll be
2: more than to hear an episode
1: halloween yes amazing leave a review share this episode with your friend if they would like to learn more about mary shelley and even if they wouldn't maybe they should anyways and we'll be back next Mm -hmm. week and go
2: follow us on our Instagram at more than especially because this week we will be watching Frankenstein. Ooh. So it is follow the week us. to come and watch. Yes, and hear all of our live updates.